ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. The Monroe County Solid Waste Management Board wants to live up to its mission of keeping trash out of area landfills. Local composting businesses are looking to promote wider use of their products. The two groups met on March 18th and discussed the challenges to creating quality compost and marketing it. Fable Farms co-owner Ryan Conway highlighted the potential for partnering with the City of Bloomington and Monroe County to use compost for soil erosion control and as backfill on construction sites. It seems to be not as widely known across the Midwest about the various uses for compost uh, in, in state, county, and municipal uh, services and construction and development projects. Uh, there's resources for the educational component available, um, but I think that by and large that's one of the biggest things. Because, yeah, I mean, topsoil will sell and compost will sell to, you know, urban farmers, urban gardeners, and, and you know, local small farmers. Um, but there are so many different uses for this stuff that the more we can get people to understand that as being cost competitive with other solutions for, like, erosion control and, and development backfill, uh, the more people mm -hmm. might be interested in the product. Good Earth owner Ramona Wright also said she'd like to count the city and county among her clients. She said her business makes more compost than it moves. We, every once in a while we'll get a big IU building that wants compost, um, like a blend, a soil compost blend that will amend where they tore a building down, they're putting mm -hmm. something back up and it's in the specs to have what our blend is. Mostly, we would like to be able to get the city of Bloomington or Monroe County more interested in using the product since we feel like what we're doing is almost like a service. But, um, the business owners said they have the capacity to expand their operations, but there are challenges. The biggest, they said, is the effort and cost of keeping their compost trash-free. Wright said she regularly sees glass bottles, appliance parts, plastic toys, even chunks of concrete and blacktop mixed in with combustible materials. Wright said she hires employees to sift out the trash, which can be costly. Kevin Huntley of Green Earth said he processes too much material to pay for hand sifting. He uses a mechanical sifter. Andrea Abne of Fable Farms said glass and plastics that aren't caught in sifting end up being ground into small pieces and passed into the compost anyway. That's where the technology fails because the, the, the smaller your particles, the faster you can produce compost, but the downside is that then you have all this trash that is also very small and cannot be separated from the compost. Kevin Huntley of Green Earth said the solution lies earlier in the process. People need to be aware of what they put where. 
In 2018, Kessler Consulting concluded that 40% of Monroe County's trash was compostable. Kessler recommended the county consider either creating its own composting facility or examine expanding the capacity of existing composting services. County Commissioner Julie Thomas sits on the Solid Waste District Board. She asked the business owners what they thought of the consultant's composting recommendation. Here's Thomas and Andrea Abina of Fable Farms. I'm just trying to get a take on whether this is a worthwhile endeavor in terms of, of the potentialities for this actually working. And we clearly know that we're not going to get 40% out, right? We know that that's never going to happen because we still... I know have recycled materials showing up in trash bags, right? And there's a recycle bin there, but yet it's showing up in trash bags. So, um, you know, I don't know what percentage we're actually going to get out. Well, but there's also like a double gain, right? Because I think that if you support all businesses that are here, right. I mean, you're supporting local businesses, but right. on top of that, you're you're reducing the amount of waste that's going to the landfill. Right. And, then, and then there's like the, the end part of it, which is you can encourage the county and even the state, the region, to mm -hmm. start using compost to do re remediation that right. is really, really right. valuable for the environment. And right. it's, I mean, it is shown already that if we want to tackle climate change, mm -hmm. it's not only about worrying about how are we going to reduce the amount of emissions that we're right. generating, but also sequestering right. carbon, right? And it's totally proven that that putting com applying compost to the soil is the one way in which we can sequester carbon from air. And so I think that there is... I, I don't see anywhere where there's a loss here. It's it's yeah. just a win for everyone yeah. in all aspects. So I don't see why you wouldn't support it yeah. and encourage yeah. it. Bloomington City Council member Isabel Piedmont Smith also serves on the Solid Waste District Board. She agreed the city and county could begin by partnering with local composting businesses to use compost at construction sites and park projects. However, Piedmont, Smith, and Thomas did not identify any specific projects. The Ellettsville Town Council approved using eminent domain to acquire a West Vine Street property for flood mitigation during their meeting on Monday. Interim Town Marshal Mike Farmer said using eminent domain allows negotiations for the purchase of 104 West Vine Street in Ellettsville to continue. When you think of eminent domain, when most people do, they think of the government coming in and taking somebody else's stuff and shoving it down their throat. And I assure you that's not, I think, our intent, at least not from my standpoint. No. So this does allow for negotiations and, like I said, a path that might lead to the purchase of the property with everybody agreeable. Council members have been hesitant to use eminent domain to acquire the property since the town's initial offer was rejected by the owner, Pip Jay's Properties. As Farmer explained, Indiana law limited the town's offer to the appraisal price. Originally, when we had the uh, property appraised, we got two appraisals and we were only allowed to give the average of the two. Uh, the first two um, appraisals we uh, received were for $130,000 each. And so we made that offer of $130,000. It was rejected. In a 2017 flood mitigation report, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources recommended the town remove infill on properties along Jack's Defeat Creek. Farmer recommended to Ellettsville Council President Brian Mobley the town by both 104 West Vine Street and a parcel at 6400 McNeely Street. 
Farmer said removing the infill on these properties can help restore the natural flow of Jack's Defeat Creek, which has a 100-year history of flooding. When we purchase this property, we, th we also have property by the same owner uh, closer to McNeely Street along the, uh, the creek, and uh, we think uh, with eminent domain in our back pocket, we can maybe bundle uh, two pieces of property and purchase uh, both of them and improve our ability to uh, help with flooding. And um, so anyway, I, I mean. Because a lot of that was put in fill of, I mean, Nelly Street, there's a lot of fill in there that we could take out also to help that. There's a ton of fill. Right, so we it, could help take it, it down. We would be allowed, if we own these properties, to bring, to restore the creek in its original condition and perhaps even better. The town has already bought a parcel at 105 East Vine Street for its flood mitigation efforts. Farmers said demolition of a building on that property will begin this week. According to a new report by the Environmental Law and Policy Center, climate change is causing large environmental shifts in the Great Lakes region. 18 experts from research institutions in the U.S. and Canada contributed to the report and concluded that without federal action, states need to take the lead to prevent or mitigate the worst effects. Precipitation, one author of the report said, has increased by almost 10% in the Great Lakes region. The report says the Great Lakes ice cover is thinner and melting earlier in winter. The report also predicts that crop yields for corn and soybeans will decrease by 10 to 30% in the southern part of the Great Lakes region because of increased spring flooding and summer heat. The Trump administration recently increased drilling for oil and gas in many areas previously not exploited. Now in a story from the Washington Post, a U.S. federal judge temporarily blocked oil and gas drilling on 300,000 acres of federal leases in Wyoming. The judge ruled that the Bureau of Land Management did not sufficiently consider climate change when auctioning off the land. What the ruling did not address is another interruption of the environment caused by widespread drilling. Some of these areas are where pronghorn antelope from Yellowstone National Park overwinter. Disturbance from drilling is causing the pronghorn to vacate prime wintering grounds in Wyoming. Pronghorn populations haven't fallen so far, but an assessment of the area's mule deer is more gloomy. Its population numbers have declined significantly. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with the focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shrev Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Now it's time for Get Out and Hike. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. I am Elizabeth Tompkins, Natural Resources Coordinator with Bloomington Parks and Recreation. And today I want to share with you a small neighborhood park called Winslow Woods that has a great three-quarter mile trail that 
loops through the wooded area there. This is the same location as Willie Streeter Community Gardens as well as the Community Orchard right across from the YMCA on Highland Avenue. This is a great location because it is easily accessible by foot or by bike or even by the bus that goes right by there. So three quarter mile loop trail that goes through some mature trees. There are some great sinkholes that have opened up in this park. And in the springtime and early summer, it's a great place to view wildflowers. There is for such a small park, there is such a diversity of wildflowers in this park. So it's a great little local park, easily accessible, and a great way to get out into the woods in town. It is a natural surface trail, and there isn't a lot of elevation change, but I think that you could probably access some parts of the trails with wheels in a stroller or a wheelchair if you had some off-road capability, but it isn't listed as an accessible trail. All right. Thank you very much. For this week's Eco Feature, WFHB's Norm Holy interviews Dr. Lee Raymond, a professor of political science at Purdue University, on the essentials of a report covering the future of energy in Indiana. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I am interviewing Dr. Lee Raymond, professor in the political science area at Purdue University. He also is a member of the Climate Lab team. He is the lead author on the most recently issued report, which is on energy. This is a key report of the series that in which there has been a report issued about every month. What are the essentials from the report? Sure, Norm, and thanks for inviting us to talk about some of these findings. As you said, the report is part of the larger Indiana climate change impacts assessment. So really looking at this this global problem of climate change, but then really trying to understand as best we can what are the likely effects of this global problem on the state of Indiana. Our main attention, we really sort of divided our efforts into looking at what are some potential effects of climate change uh, on energy demand in Indiana, and then also looked a little bit at what are some of the likely effects then on the kind of the supply side, how we produce usable and helpful energy for residents of the state. We focused our analysis primarily on the commercial and the residential sectors, mainly because prior research shows that those are the parts of the kind of energy economy that are much more responsive to climate factors. To start on the demand side, we found that, uh, again, the, the team predicting uh, basically warmer temperatures in the state, both in the winter and also in the summer. We have then found our, with our modeling that that translates into what we expect to be a about a 3% on average sort of decrease in demand for energy in the residential sector. And this is driven mainly by higher winter temperatures. And that's primarily because even though, uh, again, homeowners will be spending, will using more energy for cooling in the summer, um, for the average Indiana home at least, a larger part of that energy budget goes towards heating than towards cooling. 
so that translates in the residential sector into a, again, about a 3% decrease in demand for energy. But in the commercial sector, we find the opposite story. So in that part of those kinds of buildings, which are used more during the daytime, they actually dedicate a greater percentage of their energy to cooling than to heating. So those higher summer temperatures that we're also predicting lead to, on average, about a 5% increase in energy demand in the commercial sector. And that's a pretty significant increase. When we looked at how much is spent in the state annually on energy in the commercial sector, and then did a little bit of math with that, we translate that that's probably at least about $100 million in additional cost per year for commercial businesses if you talk about a 5% increase in their energy bills due to those higher summer temperatures. We also find in terms of the energy demand side that the state is likely to experience a much larger number of sort of extreme heat days. So averages are not the only thing that matter here. Those days where we get temperatures that are into the mid-90s and above with high humidity, put a a unique strain on the energy system, and we expect to see a much larger increase in those numbers of days um, in terms of future summers in Indiana. And so that's another really important implication for energy demand, right, that we'll have more days where we'll be looking at uh, an energy system that's going to have potentially trouble, right, meeting that sort of peak demand in that way. Uh, Using a different model and looking just at how, um, again, urban residents use energy, we still expect to see uh, a pretty substantial increase in cooling demand and a similar kind of decrease, right, in heating demand, looking at that model as well. On the supply side, we note first in the report we're in the middle of a pretty significant energy transition in the state. We basically produce 93% of our electricity supply from coal in 2009, and that number is already down to 73% just in 2017. So that's a pretty huge jump just in the last eight or nine years, with natural gas and renewables really picking up that slack. Not surprisingly, our model expects that trend to really continue in the future, Uh, and we see really that uh, going forward, uh, continuing declining reliance on coal to the point where eventually, as we look forward to like mid-century, you're really looking at a a state that's going to have no coal in its power mix, and instead you're going to have probably something like a 50-50 mix of natural gas and renewables. But there's a lot of uncertainty in the natural gas and renewable mix because that depends a lot on the relative prices of those two two energy sources. Renewables, especially right now, have been declining so rapidly that it's it's very hard to project out into the, again, you know, another 30, 40, 50, or 60 years what those prices will look like. But but what is pretty clear is that they're both out competing coal. I'm curious about uh, the cost of, say, wind power versus natural gas and coal. So really, at this point, we're seeing dramatic declines in wind, to the point where already it's now it's from 1% to 5% of the state's energy mix, again, just in the last eight years. You're seeing even more dramatic declines in the, actually the, the price of installed solar for especially utility scale is, is really actually quite spectacular, like really incredible declines in those prices. There's a good chance that if those trends continue, which is very, again, hard for us to predict, we're looking at energy potential scenarios right out to 2050 or 2080, Rather than the kind of 50% renewables mix, you could easily have a much larger mix of those renewables. So if those if the current pricing trends on renewables continue, then probably they would make up the majority of that energy mix in that sort of, again, mid-century future. How much of the state is, say, potential for, for wind energy and how much of the state is a potential for solar? 
The state has very high, obviously, wind potential and is already developing that pretty actively. We have a very large wind farm just north of Purdue, actually, where I'm working, and there's a lot of other interest in right wind development in the state. I think that it also has, you know, I would say good solar potential. You know, we're not Arizona, but there's still a good potential for solar installations here as well. I, there are definitely people who are exploring those options as well in the state. Are you predicting that there will be adequate methods for storing the energy from wind and solar? We can't really predict specific technological breakthroughs. So that's one of the important uncertainties in our report. The way we make these supply projections is we look at what the most knowledgeable sources are predicting as a kind of a general trend in technological development. And then that gets incorporated into the pricing. And then at this point, the model is also when it relies on wind, it is essentially building more capacity than required so that there will be some kind of storage that will allow for that to happen. Looking at a, a future with right, a high reliance on wind, you actually see a larger capacity being built to allow for the ability to then store when the wind is blowing harder. And so, but, but the pricing of that storage capacity is another really important uncertainty. Will power from wind, say from Kansas, come part of our energy mix in the future? I think to some extent, Indiana already is doing a little bit in the area of, again, importing and even in, to some extent exporting electricity. Whether those electrons will come from Kansas or not, I'm not sure. But I do think we are moving towards a, a future where you will see more and more of an integrated electricity market, where you'll see more and more cross-state supply and generation of electricity. I'd like to thank Professor Lee Raymond for an excellent review of energy policy going forward. Thank you very much for your comments. Thank you, Norm. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this report. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. That, my friends, is the yellow-crowned night heron. It's a rare bird in Indiana. They have a white crown and back with the remainder of the body grayish, red eyes and short yellow legs. They have a white stripe below the eye. It's a very handsome bird. It's a medium-sized heron, averaging 24 inches in length. The yellow-crowned night heron is mostly found in southern swamps and coastal areas, but a few can be found breeding northward to Indiana and Illinois. The great majority of the yellow-crowned night heron's diet consists of crustaceans, and it is a nocturnal hunter. Both sexes help build the nest, which can be as high as 60 feet or so, away from the trunk on a horizontal limb, often hanging over water. Initially, the female stands on the nest while a male carries sticks to her as part of the pair bonding process. Later, the female also gathers sticks. The nest takes about 11 days to build initially. Night herons use them for several years, adding to them each year. 
nests can be as large as four feet across with just a shallow depression inside for the two to six eggs. The Yellow Crown Night Heron. This is Norm Holy for WFHB. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. This week in our listening area, Join the fourth annual My Path Cleanup at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, March 30th from 10 a.m. to noon. Take the opportunity to clean up the roadside trash along River Road. You will be supplied with vests, trash bags, and gloves. Meet at the Owen County Soil and Conservation District Office located at 788 Pottersville Road. There will be an early bird hike at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Sunday, March 31st, from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Learn about the amazing diversity of birds in Bloomington, plus the basics of birding using field guides and honing your observation skills. The program includes a hike, so be sure to wear comfortable shoes. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Learn everything you ever wanted to know about salamanders at the Salamander Sunday program. It will be at Paintown State Recreation Area on Sunday, March 31st. Four different programs will help you understand the salamander's environment, habitat, and behavior. Participate in a salamander survey at Stillwater Marsh at 8 a.m. and a woodland exploration at 3 p.m. For details and to register, go to bit.ly slash salamander sunday 2019. The Monroe County Master Gardeners Garden Fair will take place on Sunday, April 6th. It will run from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Indiana National Guard Armory at 3380 South Walnut Street. There will be over 40 vendors of lawn and garden products and services. Three different classes will be available throughout the day. For more information, visit www.mcmga.net. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Today's feature was produced and edited by Jan Walker. Norm Holy produced this week's In Nature. Jan Walker produced and edited Get Out and Hike. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. 
Kristen Payton engineered today's show. The script was edited by Andrew Brown and Kaylin Brower. Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.